I just added two stocks to my portfolio. One of them was Starbucks, which I just released a video on, and the other was Visa, which I've been looking at for a little bit. Now, deciding to buy Starbucks and Visa isn't going to convince anybody that I'm some amazing investor, but that's okay. Sometimes with investing, we get caught up in trying to be clever. We're looking at stocks that nobody's talking about. We're trying to find companies at insane valuations so that we feel like we got a discount. It's human nature. We just want to feel like we have an edge that other people aren't seeing. But sometimes the best investments are the most obvious ones. We just have to be able to get out of our own way. So today on the Build Invest Live podcast, we're going to do a deep dive on my decision to buy Visa and how it's a great example of how we sometimes get in our own way of success as investors. So let's get into it. So I bought two companies yesterday to add to my portfolio. The first one is Starbucks, which I had mentioned in my video that I was likely going to add soon. And I did, but it was only a small starter position of about five shares at $97.20 a share, which... It's not very much, obviously, but it's a position that I'm going to keep adding on to and build up over time. Now, if you're wondering why I like Starbucks right now, I did a whole analysis in my last video, so I'll link that down in the description if you're interested. But the other stock that I bought in a much larger position was Visa. I bought 93 shares of Visa at $244.19 a share. And I only had enough in that account to buy 93 shares, so so close to 100 is just ah, so annoying. But we're going to get into my thought process on Visa here in a minute. But first, let's take a look at where my portfolio stands today. So right now, the total value is $226,489. And if we take a look at my holdings, we can see that I added Starbucks and Visa both into my portfolio. And if we just look at this as percentage of portfolio, and you can see that Visa is already a little over 10% of my current portfolio. So pretty sizable chunk already. Now, Starbucks is less than 1%, but again, it's a position that I'm going to be adding in small increments over time. Now, if we look at the portfolio performance, and as you can see, we are underperforming the S&P 500 by quite a bit, a little over 8% right now. And so one thing that I'm going to do is I've been showing this portfolio based on year to date, and that's because I just started it in December of last year, and year to date was just an easier way to do it. But I know people question other finance folks whenever they only show year to date returns, like they're trying to hide something, and I'm definitely not trying to hide anything. So from now on, I'm going to show the portfolio from when I started it, which is actually December 8th. 2022. And it's actually the day that I added McDonald's to it. Go figure. So even though it's only a few additional weeks, it just keeps it top of mind that we're actually looking at the portfolio ever since I started it. So once I updated to December 8th, 2022, you can see that my returns have actually gained a little bit against the S&P within that three-week time period in December. So the S&P is up a little over 14%, and my dividend growth portfolio is up about eight and a half. So the difference is about 5.5% as opposed to over 8 when I just did year-to-date. And again, I'm not doing it because it looks slightly better. It's just so that we know what we're looking at is total return of when I started this portfolio. All right, all that's well and good, but let's talk about Visa. So why did I buy it? Visa is a worldwide payments technology company that processes almost 200 billion transactions and over $14 trillion a year. And they happen to be growing that by double digits pretty much every year. So how does Visa actually make money? Their revenues are broken down into the following categories. You have service revenues, which are paid by Visa's clients for use and support of their payment services that make up about 34%, 13.4 billion as of 2022. You have data processing revenues, which is basically the network fee on each transaction paid for network access, authorization, clearing, and settlement. That makes up 36% of their revenues and contributed $14.4 billion last year. 
And then there's international transaction revenues, which is revenues earned for cross-border transaction processing and currency conversions. And that makes up 25% of their revenues and contributed $9.8 billion last year. And lastly, they have the other revenues category, which includes other value-added services and licensing fees. That makes up 5% of their total revenues and contributed $2 billion last year. And then taken out of the total revenues are client incentives. This is money that they use to incentivize merchants, banks, and other clients to use and accept Visa's products and services so that the network continues to grow. And that was about $10.3 billion of incentives last year. So let's take a look at their operational performance and financials. And I have to say, Visa is one of the cleanest and most obvious companies that I've ever looked at as it relates to operational performance. So if we just take a look at their financials and look at their revenues, you can see that revenues have been growing extremely steadily for quite a long time. And when we look at the percentages on the growth tab, see that the revenue growth is over 13% year over year. It's projected to be over 14%. And when you look at their five-year averages, it's over 10%. And part of the beauty of Visa's revenue growth is that it actually happens in two ways. Anytime the number of transactions on the network increases, then their network fees or their data processing revenues increase. But even if they don't grow total transactions, as payment amounts rise with inflation, their service revenue increases as well. And that's because Visa's service revenue is actually based on total payment amount. So they have truly inflation-proof revenues because the revenue goes up as prices go up. Now, if we take a look at their cash flows, you can see that their cash from operations is growing steadily, just like revenues are. Their capital expenditures are extremely low. And you can see that they're paying dividends and buying back shares pretty aggressively. And the really great part about it is their operating cash flow is enough to cover the dividends and the repurchase of shares. And speaking of dividends, if we go to the dividend growth tab and look at their dividend growth rates, we see that they have really good dividend growth rates on the three-year, the five-year, and the 10-year. Just real quick, if we look at the dividend summary, we see that they have a payout ratio at a little over 21%, which is really good, and consecutive dividend growth of 14 straight years. If we go back to their balance sheet, just want to see how much debt they have. So they currently have about $20 billion in debt. But one of the great things about Visa is they have $20 billion in debt. But if you look at their total cash and short-term investments, they have $18.7 billion in cash and short-term investments, which means that really on a net basis, they have less than $2 billion of debt. And they're a company that's generating $19 billion in cash flows every year. That's very healthy. And then lastly, if we take a look at their margins, I mean, oh my goodness. So their gross profit margin is over 97%. Their net income margin is almost 52%. And then their free cash flow margin is over 51%. I mean, these are just unbelievably high, knock it out the park type of margins. And what's even crazier is that if you look at all three of those values, all of them are even higher than their five-year average, which means that not only is Visa at those extremely high margins, but they've been improving them over time to get even better, which is just unbelievable. I mean, those margins are insane. So like I said, some things are just way too obvious. But now let's take a look at the valuation because here's where we're going to have some questions. So if I look at the discounted cash flows model, so after adding cash from operations, CapEx, and stock-based comp, we get a fair value price per share of $138.79. Now that's a far cry from the 240 something that is trading at today. 
Now, there's a couple of things I did that are kind of conservative, and we'll talk about those here, although I don't think it's going to change the answer all that much. So in terms of starting cash flow, I use the average, but Visa has been pretty consistent with their revenues. And so using the trailing 12 months would make sense as well. And then in terms of starting growth rate, I use 9%, even though if you go back to the growth tab here on Seeking Alpha, their operating cash flow projection is actually 12 and a half. Now, I use nine because at the end of the day, when I calculate their cash flow growth for the past five or six years, it comes out at about 9%. So I'm using that since that's actually what the numbers are telling me. But it wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility of just using the projected one as well. But even if I make those changes and I basically make this 18 and I make this 12 and a half, so it does change the number a little bit. Now it's at $197.41. But again, this is where the models have that variability based on what you feel comfortable with and what you want to use as your inputs and assumptions. But either way, whether the number is 138 or 180 or 197, the bottom line is that it's quite a bit lower than what Visa's trading at today. And now if we look at the multiples model, the problem here is that there's really only one competitor that makes sense to match Visa up against, and that's MasterCard. And having a multiples model with just one peer makes absolutely no sense. So this doesn't really make a lot of sense. Um, obviously, you know, MasterCard's at a higher valuation than Visa. That's something that we'll talk about here in a minute. Um, but, you know, this number isn't very helpful because there's only one peer. And I could have added somebody else in there, but if they're not a real peer, then what's the value of it anyway? And then again, when we look at price to earnings, you know, MasterCard's at a higher multiple as it relates to price to earnings. So, of course, it pushes Visa's price up. But doing a multiples model with one peer really makes no sense. And so looking at them overall, the target analyst mean price is about 278.38. And then all of our valuations are all over the place. Like the multiples ones, we can pretty much throw out. But even the discounted cash flow one, even with our most aggressive assumptions, is still quite a bit lower than what the stock's currently trading at today. And I talked about in other videos that what I like to do in this situation when this happens is take a look at the price to earnings and price to free cash flow measures over a period of time to see if a stock's trading at a reasonable multiple based on a historical perspective. So if we go to charting and we look at valuation at price to earnings and price to cash flow, they just chart and let's look at it maybe over the last five years. So what we can see here is that from a price to cash flow and price to earnings ratio, it's actually not trading that far off from a reasonable value range. And why I say that is you see that anytime that price to earnings gets below 30, Visa seems to kind of rally and it goes up, right? Now, again, this is way more art than science, but it's just trying to get an idea of historically how the stock trades. And even with price to cash flow, like it's 25, which for some stocks would be really high. But in Visa's case, anytime that it gets in that range, it actually tends to go up quite a bit. So what that kind of tells me is, even though the discounted cash flows model isn't quite where I'd want it to be, looking at previous price metrics shows that it's not trading at an unreasonable range. And actually, I'm looking at Visa as a long-term hold. So exact pricing doesn't really matter. All I really want to know is, am I paying a price that's extremely overvalued? But in this case, with those price metrics, I would say it actually looks reasonably valued based on recent history. All right, so let's take a look at Visa based on the three criteria that I use to analyze stocks, which is business, operational performance, and valuation. So in terms of business, Visa is basically a duopoly with MasterCard. They have global reach, 
and they have revenue growth that's greater than 10%. So from a business perspective, I think they are doing excellent, but that's basically a good rating. As it relates to operational performance, you know, number one, they have ridiculous margins, they have low debt, and they have dividend growth that's greater than 15%. So from an operational performance perspective, I would rate them as good. So in terms of valuation, now with the DCF model and my original assumptions, it was only about 55% of the current price. But with the more aggressive assumptions, which I think are actually pretty reasonable, it was more like 80% of the current price. And even though the multiples valuations weren't very helpful, looking at the historical price to earnings and historical price to cash flow showed that it was actually in a decently valued range. And so initially I thought I'd be putting valuation as poor, but all those things considered and updating the models in what I thought was a pretty reasonable way, I'm actually going to put valuation at okay. So even though the business and operational performance aspects are really strong, every business out there has risk. So let's talk about a few for Visa. So the first one is MasterCard. So Visa and MasterCard have stayed relatively steady as it relates to overall card market share, with Visa being slightly above 50% and MasterCard being around 25%. But obviously, MasterCard is really Visa's primary and only real competitor. But in terms of percent of global cards and market penetration, Visa is still far and away the number one provider. So risk number two, and the one that I think is probably the biggest risk to Visa, is the government, specifically the U.S. government, and any potential regulation that they would try to pass that would limit credit card interchange and fees. We saw this a bit already in 2010 with the Durbin Amendment that was in the Dodd-Frank Act that basically capped debit card interchange with the idea that banks and the card networks would earn less and the merchants would have to pay them less so that they could pass that savings on to their customers. And I know this might come as a big surprise to you, but that didn't actually happen. The merchants just kept the profits, people lost their free checking accounts and their debit card rewards, and it didn't really have the intended effect at all. But Senator Durbin is at it again with the Credit Card Competition Act of 2023 because we never actually seem to learn anything. This proposed bill would require that every credit card transaction to have two networks, with at least one of them not being Visa or MasterCard. The idea being that it would give merchants the opportunity to route payments through cheaper networks. So first off, I'm never a fan of politicians picking winners and losers when it comes to business because they're woefully uneducated on how business actually works and in general, just pandering to their voting audience. Now, there's my anti-politician soapbox comment of the day. But second, it's not going to ultimately help consumers anyway. The merchants won't reduce prices. There's going to be increased cost of managing multiple networks, either at the merchant or with the payment provider. And consumers will likely lose rewards again and potentially fraud protection and security. So I don't know how much support this bill actually has, but it will be something I'll be monitoring. And to me, unfortunately, this is one of the bigger risks that Visa has. And even though it doesn't make a lot of sense, I've learned to never underestimate the incompetence of our political leaders. Okay, but what about other payment methods or shifting to other payment types? Wouldn't that be a risk for Visa as well? Now, I think the most obvious one would be a shift to more debit card usage if people don't want to actually use credit. But with debit cards, Visa is still making a decent amount of money in network fees. Now, obviously, they probably wouldn't make as much on service fees, but even today, debit cards make up over 50% of all card payments in terms of number of transactions, with credit cards being about half that. But if we look at payment amount, credit cards outpace debit, even with the reduced volumes. And remember, Visa's getting paid by volume and total amount, so that's great. What about buy now, pay later options? 
Now, obviously, there's been a lot of talk about buy now, pay later with companies like PayPal and Apple getting into the fray. Now, the market for that, in my opinion, is relatively small compared to Visa's total volume, but it is growing. And the good thing for Visa is they already have partnerships to offer buy now, pay later through their network, basically connecting buy now, pay later providers with card issuers and clients to help bridge that gap. The best part about it for them is they can help offer the service and get a cut of it, but they don't actually have to take the credit risk that the buy now, pay later provider will have to take, which is much like how they are with credit cards. Okay, but what about real-time payments, and FedNow. Okay, there's been a lot of crazy videos and posts out there about FedNow, conspiracy theories, and how it's going to totally disrupt Visa and MasterCard. It's not. So I'm not going to go through every single reason of why that's not going to be the case, but it basically boils down to this. Because the primary use case for FedNow is not really going to be point-of-sale purchase payments. Because, one, it's not integrated into any of the million payment touch points we have there today. And it would take a lot of effort and money and time to do that, assuming that anybody actually has an incentive to do that. And number two... Nobody really has an incentive to do that other than the merchants. Now, merchants might want a cheaper payment rail, but ultimately they'll have to pay a payment processor to integrate it since it needs to be connected to a bank. And number three, it doesn't offer the same purchase and fraud protection that credit and debit cards offer through Visa and MasterCard and their banks. And banks have no incentive to build that out for FedNow or any similar service since they actually make revenue with customers using their cards, whereas with FedNow, it would just be a cost to them. Ultimately, FedNow is very similar to the Clearinghouse's RTP platform, which is real-time payment. And that's been out there for a few years already, and there are some banks using it, but again, nobody's really using it for purchase payments. It's useful for lower-value business-to-business transactions, even some business-to-consumer transactions like insurance claim payments, and maybe consumer-to-consumer payments like trying to transfer money immediately to one of your other checking accounts. But they make very little to almost no sense for point of sale or purchase payments. And anybody who's telling you that- You are not serious people. Okay, so real quick, why invest in Visa and not MasterCard? And it's a totally valid question as to why I would pick one over the other. So in terms of revenue growth history and projections, MasterCard and Visa are about the same, but Visa has slightly higher income and free cash flow margins. In terms of debt, on the Visa side, their net debt is almost nothing if you consider they have about 20 billion in debt, but $18 billion in cash, and they generate $19 billion in cash flow every year. And just from a personal perspective, I like Visa better. Like, I have Visa cards, and to me, their brand is the mark of global payment acceptance. But I will say, MasterCard is a fantastic business and an amazing stock, and it's actually outperformed Visa, so I couldn't fault anybody for choosing MasterCard over Visa either. They're both great. And then last question, but wait a minute. I thought you already had Amex in your portfolio. Why would you buy Visa if you already have American Express? So believe it or not, American Express and Visa aren't as direct a competitors as you might think they are. So Amex obviously has a network, but they're also an issuer and a banking provider that gets interest income and has default risk for the credit that they lend out. So they're more like a bank that operates a closed-loop network for their cards. Whereas Visa is a payments infrastructure and technology company who process transactions but don't actually take the credit risk that the card issuers do. So I don't see it as an overlap or overallocation of my portfolio, and I still feel good about them both. So that was Visa, and the reality is I should have bought it a long time ago, especially since my background in my corporate career was payments. And this is a good example of how I tend to get in my own way as an investor. Sometimes I get caught up in trying to find companies that no one else is talking about. 
because I feel like that's the way to outperform because it'll grow at higher multiples and all that. And I think we all do this at times, but sometimes the winners are just the winners. So when it's obvious like that, it's better to just make that investment than to sit around worrying that it's too obvious or that everyone already knows or there's no extra alpha there. Because the goal for me is to outperform the market and build wealth, not have the most interesting and obscure investments that no one else saw. And at least for me, it's good to take a step back sometimes and remember that because I tend to forget. And especially nowadays, there's always a way to find something negative about a stock or a reason not to buy it. We have all this information and data available to us. We have more analysis than we can even read online. And then we have the opinions on every social platform saying one thing or another. And when I think about how much of a challenge that is, I think about that bell curve meme. You know the one that I'm talking about? The one where it's the low IQ guy on the left and the high IQ guy on the right, and they're thinking the same thing. So first of all, I love that meme. It's hilarious. But I also think there's a lot of truth in it because we paralyze ourselves with information and tools and analysis that we miss the forest from the trees sometimes. I mean, Visa has a 97% profit margin. They convert over 50% of their revenues to cash flow. They have basically no debt when you count the cash they have on hand. They're a ubiquitous global brand and effectively a duopoly with MasterCard. And their revenues are growing at double-digit rates still. So until that story changes... What else is there for me to think about? Absolutely nothing. And that's why I bought. Now, there's no guarantee that even with Visa's amazing business and performance, that their stock is going to continue to outperform the market. That's ultimately the bet that I'm making as an investor. And I understand why people put such a premium on valuation, because getting a good valuation gives them the confidence that they're going to be able to have a margin of safety to outperform and get the returns they want, even if there's some unknown things that are going to happen in the future. But if my plan is to attach myself to great businesses with wide moats that are generating cash and rewarding shareholders, then there's not much more I could ask for. And sometimes that's the difference between actually seeing success and waiting around for the next best thing. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Build Investor Podcast. Hope you guys have a great day out there. Financial independence is true freedom. So keep building and stacking wins. And I'll see you guys in the next one. Peace. Peace.